0: The book of Hebrews calls us to draw near to the throne of grace. We're going to dive into chapter 10 this morning. It's page 1006, if you have one of those blue hardback Bibles. To begin with this morning, I want to show you some pictures. And I have a, I have a series of, of pictures that I want to show you. And each picture begins with an image of a shadow. Okay, so first I'm going to put the shadow up on the screen, and I want you to guess what you think it is the object is that is casting the shadow. Does that make sense? Now, as I tell my kids in life group, we're, we're not at school, so you don't have to raise your hand. Just call it out if you think you know. Okay, let's see the first image there. All right, what do you think this is? This is a shadow of what? A hand. Okay, are they right? Go to the next slide. Yes, a hand. This one's easy. All right, how about the second, second image? It's a child. Are you guys sure? Alright, let's see if they're right. It is a child. Very good. You're getting the hang of this. Number three. Scarecrow. Any other guesses? An alien? Wow. Okay. Alright, let's see what we got. It's a little girl. You didn't know that. You would never have guessed, right? The way that the, the sun and the and the shadow image is reflecting, it's distorted. It doesn't look like the object that it's representing. How about how about the fourth picture? What do we got? A fish. You gotta yell it out louder. I can't hear you. A fish. Yeah, I I'm I'm thinking like whale, right? Let's see, let's see what the image is. It's a duck. I fooled you guys, huh? How about that? Isn't that interesting that the shadow looks almost nothing like the image looks in, with your natural eye? All right, like, let's go to the last one. A moose. Clearly a moose, right? Any other guesses? Something that's not a moose. That's not a moose. Pete Wisdom may have it. Go to the next slide. Oh, it's a shadow puppet that somebody's hands that look like a moose. Right? Shadows are fascinating, aren't they? Right, I mean, you could look at a shadow and get a glimpse of what the image is. Sometimes you're dead on, sometimes it's distorted, sometimes you think you know. Sometimes it, it looks nothing like what the actual image represents. The shadow is ultimately just an outline of the object, right? You can, you can take the moose down and go to the next Hebrew slide. <laughs> Right it, it's, it's, in essence, the object, the thing in real life, but without any light. right The shadow is only darkness. It represents the image, but it, only in darkness. And sometimes our eyes fool us. Sometimes the shadow is distorted and doesn't give us a clear picture. But even when the, the image of the shadow is perfect, even when the angle is dead on and you can tell what it is, it's still not the real thing, right? Nobody looks forward to spending time with a shadow or greeting a shadow. It's not and never will be the real thing. The shadow only and always represents something better and greater and clearer than what you can tell by the outline of darkness. That's what we're going to read about this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. And here's the big idea. The big idea is that animal sacrifices of the old covenant were only a shadow were only a shadow of the good things that were to come. The shadows of the tabernacle and the priests and the animal sacrifices only represented the true reality. Now those sacrifices of the old covenant did have a purpose, and they they gave us some indication of what was to come, right? Like a shadow, you can look at the tabernacle and the priests and the animal sacrifices and the rituals, and you can see certain outlines and images, and you can get a sense of what they are intended to fulfill, But they could never ultimately meet the need that humans have to be cleansed. They could never perfect the worshiper because they weren't the real thing. They couldn't actually make us clean and perfect under the old covenant. And perfection is something that I think all humans have a yearning, have a longing for. We all sense that there's something wrong and broken with the world. Every religion, every worldview, whether it's religious or secular, all agree something is wrong with this world. Something is wrong with us. And we all have this yearning to be perfect, to to have life that would be flawless and faultless, to be untainted. We all desire to be complete, to be whole, but only Christ can make us perfect. Only Christ can make us perfected for all time, the book of Hebrews will say, because he is the full image, the full reality of what all of those shadows we're looking ahead to. And so we're going to see this morning in, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, you can see the outline in the bulletin and on the screen. We're going to look first at the shadow of things to come, then we'll look at the sacrifice of Christ's body, and finally the sanctification of our sinful Hearts, So, let me pray for us, and I will read the word and we'll dive in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak clearly and definitively to us the truths that we need for life, that in your word is life, and we thank you for what we find in the book of Hebrews. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts, fill our minds. God, we ask you to give us ears to hear. We ask you to call us to attention. Call us to obedience, call us to faith, give us ears to hear you and hearts to follow you. Bless now the reading of your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin everybody said amen so verse 1 opens off and if you've been with us through a series in the book of hebrews there's some familiar themes saying that the laws and the rituals that regulated the sacrificial system of the old covenant those things were just a shadow of what was to come in fact we we heard this theme in in chapter 8 chapter 8 said that they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things now, this may or may not seem relevant to us as first century believers or 21st century believers, but for the first century Jewish Christians, remember they were being tempted, they were being lured back into the stability and the tradition and the safety of the sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews is saying, No, 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 don't go back to the temple, don't go back to the priest and the animal sacrifices. They're just a shadow. The real thing is here. Now, now he clarifies it's not that the tabernacle or the temple were useless. Right? They showed the form. They showed the outline like a shadow does. They were a foreshadow of the work of the Messiah. Right? It's like walking down the street in a city. There's a tall building right here where the podium was standing. If somebody were walking from the, other, from the other corner, I could see their shadow coming across the, the building, coming around the corner before I could see them, Right? I could tell that something was coming. I could even begin to see a shape and an outline. Is it a man, a woman, a child? Is it a car? You can see the outline coming. And so it's not that the sacrificial system had no purpose, that it was useless. It, it enabled the people to see what was coming, right? But it's not until Christ turns the corner of the building and rounds the, the side of the building and comes towards the people that then you can see what the shadow was representing. Do you see how that works? And so the author of Hebrews is saying Christ has now come. He's rounded the corner. You no longer need to just look at his his shadow and, and try to grasp at what God is after. Now God himself is in the flesh on earth, the real thing. The shadow of the good things to come is Jesus, the true form of these realities. Now Christ has walked around the corner. He's turned and he's facing his people. And so again, there's clarified in verse 1 that these shadow sacrifices are offered continually, day after day, year after year, hundreds and thousands of of animals slain and grain offered and wine offered. And And the author says they can never make perfect the people. The people that are trying to draw close to God in worship are never made perfect. To be perfect, as I said earlier, is to be faultless. To be completely flawless, untainted, unstained. But, but not just morally perfect, but this idea of completeness is here in the Word. This idea that you're, you're a whole person. You're complete as God intended you to be. But again, these themes we trace throughout the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 9 said that gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Ultimately, they, they fail to do what we need and what we long to be made perfect. And so verse 2 says, look, otherwise, if the animal sacrifices could perfect and cleanse the conscience of the sinner for good, then what? Well, those sacrifices would have ceased to be offered, right? The fact that they're offered continually is just an indication of their temporary benefit and their lack of lasting value. Yes, there's a temporary benefit when, when the old covenant believers offered a sacrifice. They did it in faith, faith that God's mercy would come upon them, but it wasn't lasting, if the, if the worshipers were truly cleansed through the rituals of the temple and the, and the feasts of Israel, if, if they were truly made whole and perfect before God, and I'm talking about past, present, and future, well then they would have no longer had a guilty conscience, verse 2 says, they would have no longer needed to come back to the temple for another sacrifice, right, think about it this way, I won't ask for a show of hands, but hopefully most of you took a shower this morning or maybe last night, right? That shower had some benefit. It got you clean. But it's not lasting benefit. It's not permanent. Right? Lord willing, each of us are going to shower every single day. Right? Teen boys, listen up to this. You take a shower every single day because you get dirty again the next day. And the shower you took yesterday does no good for today because now you're dirty and smelly again. So you need to shower again. That's what's happening with the animal sacrifices of the old covenant. There's no lasting benefit. Now, it's not that they had no purpose. It's not that they failed to accomplish what they were intended. Verse 3 tells us what they were intended to do. They reminded the people year after year that you are continually in the grip of sin, that you need a Savior. And so year after year, the shadows pointed them to a greater reality. But verse 4 says, If you think the blood of bulls and goats can reconcile you back to God, can cleanse your conscience, can take away your sin. That's impossible because animals are not created in the image of God. Animals are not worthy of paying the high price of of our debt of sin and reconciling us back to the Father. They're only shadows. They cannot make you perfect. And I think many of us have this yearning, this craving for perfection. Many people live in the pursuit of perfection. Again, not just to be morally fault, faultless, but, but to be whole, to be complete. God, I'm broken, and there's gaps, and I'm, I, I fail, and I make mistakes, and I want to be perfect. I want to, to, to be whole. And, and in the, the heart of every human is the longing for eternity, the longing to know our Creator, the longing to be who God intended us to be. And so we try to be perfect, and some of you have been trying every day of your whole life. And we call you perfectionists. And it can be a burden, can it? The continual desire. Of course, others of you just gave up years ago. You're like, nope. You better accept me the way that I am. I'm flawed and that's all you're going to get. But there are probably areas of life where we all have, have indications or reminders, whether it's personally or in your work, uh, you know, of, of desiring to be perfect. Um, I, I thought of this, this, this example, this Year, years ago, we were actually, oddly enough, renovating our current office space that we're in, and uh, we had this reception counter that we were, we were building, and we were going to put in behind the front desk. And the day that the, the guy from church was coming to, to put the, build the reception counter, I pushed the desk back into the room, away from the hallway, so that he would have room to, to, to build the counter. When I came back the next day, I realized that he had built a counter in front of the desk that I had pushed back away from the hallway where it was supposed to be. And so I walked in to found that it was was about six inches. But in that moment, that was a bad six inches, right? Like, this is not how we designed it, not how I thought we talked about it, not how it was supposed to be. It was less than perfect. Now the room is smaller. Now the hallway seemed off. And so I'm standing there thinking, okay, do I ask this guy to come back and redo this? You know, Now, it seems like a small thing, but I'm telling you, for months after that, I would walk into our newly renovated office space, and I would walk past this and think, oh, that's not right. It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way I wanted it. It's not perfect. And over time, the Lord had to remind me of something that that now I remind my kids of on maybe not a daily basis, but a weekly basis. And hopefully, I won't put you guys on the spot, but when they're frustrated or they're discouraged or something doesn't work out right, whether it's school or sports or a game that was lost or a friendship that's hurting, I say to them, What's perfect on this earth? They know what the answer is nothing. Nothing. Not my heart not that reception desk, not our new ministry center and office space. Nothing is going to be perfect on planet Earth because we all live under the fallenness and brokenness of human sin and the plague of evil that has infected and infested every area of our lives. And so we live under this this weight that nothing is as it should be. And yet we can't let go of that desire, that longing for relationships that are complete, for bodies that are whole for longings of our heart that actually work out, for, for, for relationships where we can treat one another with the type of honor and love that we desire. But we can't just say, okay, forget about it. Nothing's perfect. We're all broken. Because Jesus said, and I'm quoting the words of Jesus, Jesus said to us, to his followers, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You think, well, wait a minute, we just got done saying that nothing is perfect, but now Jesus is calling us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. He'll say uh, elsewhere, be holy as your Father is holy. And so if we are created to be in the image of God, to reflect our heavenly Father, to be as He is, if He is holy and He is perfect, and, and Jesus calls us to that perfection, well that just seems like an even heavier weight, a more unbearable reality to live in. Because we just read that animal sacrifices aren't going to do us any good. Hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices isn't going to make you perfect. Religious rituals is not what you need. Even moral regulations is not going to cure the imperfection of your heart. It's not going to fulfill the longing that you were created for. Those things can't help us obtain perfection because they're just shadows. They're not the real thing. Only Christ... Only Christ can make you and I perfect because only Christ is the true reality, and so we need a better sacrifice, and that's what we find in verse 5. Look back at the text. We see there the sacrifice of Christ's body. Verse 5 says, as a result of these shadows of the old covenant, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and and the author of Hebrews is going to put some words in the mouth of Jesus, and he does so because he's quoting from Psalm 40. You can put Psalm 40 up on the screen. This, this is a, a, a paraphrase in the, in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus. Picture Jesus saying to the Father, I have come to do your will. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You don't take pleasure in sin offerings, but instead you have prepared a body for me. As it is written in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. And so the author, as all of the New Testament authors do, he looks at the Old Testament and he says, this is fulfilled in Jesus. And in Psalm 40, this cry of the heart is the cry of the Messiah, Jesus. And the author there is quoting from the, the Greek translation of Psalm 40, showing that Jesus came to do the will of God, that he came to do something and offer something greater than burnt sacrifices, greater than, than offerings of sin. And Psalm 40 says in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But the heart of the Messiah there says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. It's not about these external rituals. It's about your law in my heart. See, even in the Old Testament, this this is not some concept that the New Testament authors or Jesus made up. Even in the Old Testament... God made it known that he was after people's hearts and not the rituals and the sacrifices, right? Quick, quick overview. Look at 1 Samuel 15. Samuel says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, right? Even the prophet Samuel knew that listening and obedience was better than sacrifice and rams. Psalm 51 the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. The greatest sacrifice there could ever be is not goats and rams and bulls. It's a broken and contrite heart. A humble, obedient heart. Hosea 6.6. 6. The prophet says, I desire Jesus. The, sorry. The prophet says the words of the Lord. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. See, God was always indicating that there was something greater than these rituals and this religion and the external obedience. Now, of course, the Lord set up and commanded his people to follow the sacrificial system, right? He wasn't against it. He was using it for a purpose. But what happened was they, they, they thought that the system in and of itself was where there was value. There's no value in the system. It's what the system directed and pointed the people to. They had no intrinsic value It was what the sacrifices represented. It was to whom the sacrifices directed the people that God was trying to call them to. See, sacrifices made out of obligation or tradition don't please God. Whether it's an animal sacrifice or your church attendance or your Bible reading or your acts of obedience or your religiosity, done out of obligation and tradition is not going to please God. An empty, faithless ritual doesn't bring glory to God. Now, rituals can be very, very good and very, very helpful, and God has called us to things that should be habit and should be tradition, should be ritual, but not empty ritual, faith-filled ritual. See, routines can be good unless they're apathetic routine, unless they're mindless routine. God is not after mindless, apathetic routine then, and He's not now. It's the heart of faith. It's trust in the mercy of God that He is after, and that's what the sacrifices were intended to do. And that's what we saw in Psalm 40. Psalm 40 verse eight says that the Lord wanted a people who would delight to do His will and receive the law into their hearts into their hearts. And so this section is wrapped up in eight and nine in saying all of this. Jesus was, was doing away with the sacrifices of the first covenant, the sacrifices according to the law, in order to do the will of God and establish the second covenant. Remember, we've seen that in the book of Hebrews, the first covenant according to the law, and the second covenant, a covenant in our hearts that's according to grace, according to the unmerited grace and love of God, found in the sacrifice of Christ's body. And so, as verse 10 says, by that will, by the will that Jesus came to obey, by the will of God, we have been what? Sanctified. Sanctified. Now, that word sanctified is, is, is kind of the verb form, not kind of, it's the verb form of the, of the noun holy, okay? Now, the concept of holy is this. I know it's a fancy religious word. Holy means to be set apart. God is holy, why? Because he's set apart from anything else in all of creation. He is distinct, he is unique because God is pure. God is whole, God is distinct, God is good, God is loving, God is righteous, God has no faults and failures. And to be holy is to be like God. To be sanctified is to be, to be made holy, to be made like God, to be set apart and distinct. And we have been sanctified, it says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, in verse 5, there's that peculiar little phrase where Jesus said, a body you have given me, that's referring to his body. See, Jesus didn't come down to earth and offer a bunch of blood sacrifices of goats and bulls. The eternal Son of God was given a body. Why did Jesus become flesh? We just talked about this for like five weeks, right? The incarnation. Why did Jesus have a body and become flesh? So that he could offer his own flesh and blood. His own flesh and blood. The perfect flesh and blood of the Son of God. Fully God. Fully man. A physical body. Atoning. Substituting for us. Dying in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. And through His sacrifice, we are now made holy. We are now purified and set apart like God. Set apart from sinful creation. More and more reflecting the image of God. Now remember, verse 1 of our passage said that the sacrifices of the old covenant couldn't perfect those who draw near to God. But now we have a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice that can perfect those who draw near to God. And so this morning, in faith cry out to christ draw near to christ and to say god i'm i am imperfect and i am faulted and tainted and broken and sinful and disobedient and wayward and rebellious and hurting and disconnected god i need a better sacrifice the sacrifice of christ's own body and now being made holy in faith through the work of christ now we can draw near Right? We can draw near, as Hebrews 4.16 says, we can now, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace. In this pathetic representation of the throne that Jesus is sitting on, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And at the throne of grace, what do we find? We receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. And we are made perfect. We are made holy. We can come to God in confidence. Because our sinful hearts have been sanctified. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, remember, those priests of the old covenant, they stood at the temple to perform their duties every day. The same sacrifices repeatedly over and over, day after day, month after month, year after year. And they can never take away sins. So the priests had to keep standing, keep serving, keep sacrificing. But what did verse 12 say? When Christ had offered the single sacrifice of himself once and for all, he sat down, right? We get this image in the book of Hebrews of Jesus sitting on the throne of grace, sitting down at the right hand of God, this place of dignity and honor on the throne of grace because his work is done, his work is complete, and so he sits down in victory claiming his place of authority. In fact, if you go back and read the Gospels when Jesus stood before the Jewish leaders, what's called the Sanhedrin, and he was put on trial, Jesus claimed to be at the right hand of God, and that's what led to his ultimate conviction because he, he said, I have this place of honor, and he was executed for it. And so verse 13 says, he finishes his work on the cross, he sits down until the time his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Uh, I want you to see this, and I, I, want, I want you to get, get an image of what verse 13 is saying. So I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer who is agile. Come on. Somebody come up. You want to do it? You sat, you're sitting on the front row. You're not in class. Come here for a sec. Give him give a little hand. All right, so Jesus <laughs> dies on the cross, Right? He sits down on the throne of grace. Why does he sit down? Because his work is done. You sit down when you're finished, right? He sits down. I need you to, I need you to get down on all fours. He sits down, and what does it say? Waiting until the time that his enemies become a footstool. Right? This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he's waiting for. This is the picture that the author of Hebrews has given us where death and sin and the world and the flesh and evil and the devil become a footstool for Jesus under his feet in victory, triumphing over them. This is the work of the cross. This is the work of the resurrection. This is what will finally happen when Christ returns. Amen? Amen. Thank you, brother. Good job. Hey... You're you're going to be sitting next to Jesus, though, in the the, the end, right? Not not under his feet, okay? Good stuff, man. Thank you. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Jesus has put them to shame. He's triumphed over them. We heard this in, in the very first chapter of Hebrews 1, quoting from Psalm 110, when the Lord said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Listen, Christ has victory. Over every enemy in your life, over every wickedness in the world, over every sin, over every demonic influence, Jesus has had victory in his death and his resurrection, and one day there'll be nothing more than a footstool on his throne of grace. Because why? Because verse 14 says that by one single offering, one single offering, Jesus died one time, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, there's two things that we see in this verse, in verse 14. He has perfected us, it says, for all time. That, that word in the, in the Greek is, is, is past tense. It is completed. We are whole. We are perfect. It's past tense. We are now qualified to be in God's presence. He has perfected us for all time. This is what theologians call, you want to learn a fancy term, definitive sanctification. We've been sanctified, made holy. It's definitive. It's done. It's definite, right? This is similar to, to our, our, our idea of justification that we've been made right. We are, on the moment of our new birth, the moment the Holy Spirit fills our heart, we are made perfect. Definitive sanctification. But the verse goes on to say in verse 14, we have been, he has perfected us for all time, those who are being sanctified. Okay? Now that is a present participle. That means it, it's present and ongoing. So find your English teachers and help them explain to you what a present participle is. But a present participle means it's something that's happening to you now in an ongoing, continual way. We are being sanctified. Remember that word sanctified means we are being made holy. We're growing in holiness. We are being transformed and progressing more and more into the image of God. Hebrews Chapter 12 is going to tell us in about two weeks to strive for holiness. So listen, definitive sanctification, you are made perfect on the day that you're adopted as a son or daughter of God, declared righteous, and yet we are growing in holiness, striving for holiness. We are being sanctified while on earth, right? Right? Your status in heaven is done. You're holy. You're right. Your standing on earth is in process. Amen? Anybody give an amen to that? You are growing in holiness, growing in sanctification. And man, both of these realities you need to hold on to. Verse 14 is a good one to memorize. It's a reality to hold on to in the day-to-day of life. I was thinking back to last summer, our dear Friends, uh, the Stacklers that live in Mississippi, we rented a house together on the panhandle of Florida. We were going away for a week's vacation, and man, we were excited. Long story short, the house we had originally reserved uh, fell through. There had been a mix-up with the reservation company. We had to scramble and find a, a house at, at the last minute to, 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 find, to, to rent the 12 of us in Florida. So we get this house. It wasn't quite as good as what we wanted. It wasn't quite as big as what we wanted. The pool... Okay, I asked my kids afterwards, like, I could, I could sit in the middle of the pool and touch both sides. It was like a glorified hot tub, right? Now, from end to end, I couldn't, I couldn't quite touch. And so we get to this house. Now, my kids say that there's like regular dad and vacation dad, right? I don't know if dads, you have that, right? But on vacation, you kind of cut loose, you try to have fun. Part of the reason I think they refer to vacation dad is because I spend money, right, on vacation in a way that I would never do at home. And so we're having vacation, Dad, and I'm trying to make the best of this, of this pool, which the best part about having a pool at the beach is you come back from being hot and sweaty and sandy, right, and you jump into the pool. The problem was by 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, this tiny little pool was about 80 degrees, right? But I'm doing cannonballs into this thing. I'm bringing the hose into this. Like, I'm trying to be fun vacation, Dad, to make the best of it. But the other part of vacation is that there's 12 of you living in a house together and you never get any break, right? You don't go away to work. You don't get, you don't get uh, separation. You might, maybe not be getting good sleep. And so there's another aspect of me on vacation that can be tense, that can be grumpy, that at times can be in a bad mood, right? Because a week is a long time with 12 people in a house, particularly when the pool is not what you thought it was going to be. And I remember distinctly this one time where my wife Came into the room, and I had been grumpy and moody and and, and snippy with the kids. And she had to speak a word of uh, correction to me. Now, in my defense, I think she was a little harsh. But but what she said needed to be said. It's what God needed me to hear to cleanse my heart, to call me back to a place of humility and and, and faith and grace with my children. But in that moment, where I was corrected by my wife, where my sin was called to account, where I had to come to grips with the fact that it wasn't everybody else's problem in the house, it was my problem. I had to hold on to both of these realities. That on the one hand, even though I had screwed up, even though I had failed to let Vacation Dad win that day, even though I had to apologize and there were things I was getting, you know what I could hold on to? My standing before God as one who had been made perfect through the cross of Christ, amen? Amen. But I also had to come to grips with the fact that I'm still in the process of being made holy. And I had to strive for holiness, as Hebrews chapter 12 will teach us. And so I had to ask God for grace and ask him to help me to wake up the next day in his strength to do better. Amen? You have been made perfect by the once and final sacrifice of Christ. And you are being made holy here on earth. In fact, verse 15 says the Holy Spirit bears witness about this. And he's quoting again from Jeremiah 31, one of his favorite passages. In Jeremiah 31, the Word of God says, This is the covenant I will make with them in the later days. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins no more. Do you see what God is saying there? This new covenant, the new covenant in Christ is no longer an external work of ritual, but it's now an internal work of transformation. You and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are being transformed into the image of God, being made pure, made holy, made into the men and women of God that He has called us to be. And what a beautiful promise in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of sins, an offering for sin is no longer needed. Friends, listen. If you are here this morning, and maybe this morning is the very first day of your life, you've trusted in Christ as Savior. But whether it's today or whether it was 30 years ago, if your faith is in Christ, listen, He has made a sacrifice for your sin. You have been forgiven, and that means there is no longer any sacrifice for sin, no longer any punishment for sin. Do, do you realize this? If your faith is in Christ, God cannot punish you. He cannot have righteous anger towards you. It would be unjust for him to, to punish you or, 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 or pour out anger or wrath on you because it's already been taken. It's already been soaked up in Christ. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin. And yet how many of us, when we stumble and fall, we beat ourselves up, we harp on ourselves, we, we, we neglect good things because we think, well, I have to make myself miserable for a few days to, to, to counteract what I've done. Friends, you're forgiven. God, listen, remembers your sin no more, the scripture says. That means that you are clean, you are holy, you are perfect before God once and for all. The finished work of Christ you say, but, but Pastor Tim, I, I, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I struggle to believe it. But God said it was true. God said, you're clean. You're mine. You're perfect. Can you believe that that's your identity? Remember a time where a friend of mine had gotten into a car accident. And the car accident was his fault and he knew it. He was tired. He was weary. He was not paying attention. He drifted and he got into a bad accident. And you know what it caused? Physical pain, financial debt. Time off of work, stress for his wife, and he felt horrible. He was beating himself up. He he had done something wrong. He had been negligent behind the wheel. And he said, "Tim, I, I'm just struggling to let it go. I'm beating myself up. I feel terrible." And you know what I texted him? I said, "Christ was already crucified for you, and you do not, and you must not re-crucify yourself." Can you hear that this morning? I don't know what you did this week. I don't know how you may have mistreated your spouse. I don't know the images that you may have looked at online that you're ashamed of. Kids, I don't know what you did behind your parents' back. Men of God, I don't know how you failed to love and serve and sacrifice for your wives. Wives, I don't know how you failed to to serve and, and, and respect your husbands. I don't know how many missed opportunities there were to speak for Christ to friends and neighbors in need. I don't know how often you lacked faith. I don't know how often you gave in to to the pleasures of the world rather than the pleasures of Christ. But I know this. I know that if your faith is in Christ, you are forgiven. And there is no longer a sacrifice for sin because it's already been done. And your name is in the book of life. You've been adopted. You've been called beloved son, beloved daughter. You are forgiven and you have been perfected for all time. Rest in that. So here's how we're going to wrap up as the worship team comes. We're going to wrap up and we're going to sing and give glory to the sacrifice of Jesus. And as the worship team comes, I want to ask the elders and deacons and and your your wives to please come up because we we want to pray for you. We want to pray for you as broken sinners. We want to pray for you as men and women of God that need to be purified. So as the elders and deacons gather on the sides to be available to pray for you, Karen Spear, if you would come up as well, please. If you are a man or a woman this morning that struggles with perfectionism, that can't let go of that desire to to always get it right, and you feel this heavy burden, would you come up and would you let us pray for you? Let us pray for you, that you'd be released of that, that need to earn perfection or to live a perfect life on your own. And I also want to give a call for those of you that are relying on the shadows thinking that the shadows are going to make you right with God, thinking that your own sacrifices, thinking that your own external obedience, thinking that your own rituals, these good things that God has designed, but they're not the real thing, they're the shadow. If you find yourself in a place this morning where you are relying on things outside of Christ to get you by, would you come up as well and let us pray for you? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, we lift this song up to you now. And as we sing, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come down on us. Give us humility and boldness for those that need to come forward this morning and receive prayer. To be built up again in faith that that we cannot be perfect on our own, that Christ has done it for us. For those of us that are relying on the shadows and not the true reality of Christ, help us to lay those things down. We thank you that you have overcome every sin, every failure, and every fault in our lives. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and we are with him now. Hear our worship, receive our prayer. Come Holy Spirit.